Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. I want you to get out of this fill-in-the-blank series an edge. I want you to be able to figure out who you are and how you got to be who you are, where you are. I'm going to ask you to move your position from being right to being happy. And you know what? That might just stick. There's a common theme to what I've been saying, and that is I'm being selfish on your behalf. And you may think, boy, if I do everything he's been talking about, I'm going to feel selfish. Well, don't. Don't feel selfish when you're putting yourself first. Okay, you just heard a recap of Living by Design Part 1, so stands to reason this is Part 2. And obviously, I'm talking to you about you, and we are going to talk about some really fun things today that are going to change your life. That's my goal. I hope it's your goal as well. Remember, as we were finishing last time, I was talking about the fact that I wanted you to know who you were and how you got to be there. Now, let me take that one step further, because once you're there and you are who you are, let me be real clear. Everybody has a way of being in this world. You do, I do, the guy next to you does, the woman at the store does, the woman you work with does. Everybody has a way of being in this world. And everybody's a little different. It's true, we are like snowflakes. Everybody's different. And everybody makes a statement. I do a lot of speeches around the country, a lot of live presentations. And it's the same thing when I'm doing Dr. Phil. I always like to look at the audience and kind of see who I'm talking to. You know, it's really interesting because people present really differently. Even though it might be a weekend speech or seminar I'm doing at a resort, Here will come this guy. He's all buttoned up. He's got on a sport coat and a tie, and he's got a nice haircut. I mean, he's coming in, and he's got all this on saying, hey, I'm credible. Look at the way I'm dressed. Then I'll look over to the right, and there's a guy over there that looks like he woke up five minutes before he got there, dove in the laundry basket, jumped out. Everything is wrinkled, barely dressed, and says, hey, here I am. I'm laid back. Let's go see the bald guy make completely different statements. How about you? What is the statement you make? Look in the mirror and ask yourself, what do you communicate just by the way you present? Some people come in a room like a house of fire. They blow through the double doors, knock them back into the wall. They come in, make a noise like a whirling dervish. They're the center of attention. They're just right in the middle of everything. Other people, they just drift in like a cool breeze, and they're just over by the side, standing against the wall, taking everything in. Is one way right and the other way wrong? No. Neither way is right or wrong. 
everybody has their own way of being in the world. The main thing is that you know what you're projecting. What's your image? What are you putting out? And is it what you want to put out? I'm a people watcher. You probably guess that by what I do, but I'm a people watcher. I'll never forget one time Jay was with me. We were traveling in New York, and we were flying out of LaGuardia back to Dallas. And that's at the end of one concourse, way at the end. Now, this was back before 9-11, so anybody could get on the concourse down by the gates. And as usual on a Friday night, everything is delayed. It's snowing outside. This is stacked up. And I swear to God, you look on this concourse, it looks like the bar scene in Star Wars. There's all kinds of creatures out there looking around. And so he and I are just standing over to the side, and we're watching people, and we're looking at this one guy. I say, Jay, hey, look at this guy over here. Now, this guy was gray. He had gray hair. He had on a gray suit. He had on a gray shirt. He had on a gray tie. He had on gray shoes. His skin was gray. His briefcase was gray. This guy was gray. He looked like Don Knotts, Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith Show. I mean, it looked like if you thumped him, he would fall down. And he's standing there kind of hunched over against the wall. All of a sudden, down the concourse, here come three guys. They're marching, goose-stepping down there, lockstep. These guys have got on leather jackets. They've got everything you can possibly pierce on your body pierced. They got chains going from their nose to their ears. They got tattoos everywhere. They got mohawks. I mean, their heads are tattooed. They're communicating, hey, we are bad dudes. They're stomping down, pushing people out of the way. And what happens? They catch Barney looking. They catch old Mr. Gray looking at him, and they turn on him. They're twice his size. They whirl on him, and they go over there and say, what are you looking at? Now, I usually mind my own business, but, now, wait a minute. I don't even know why I said that. That's not true. I don't always mind my own business, but I sure didn't this night. They're over there bullying this guy. What are you looking at? I couldn't help myself. I went over there. I said, what do you mean? What's he looking at? He's looking at you, you freaks. What do you expect? Did you get up this morning and put all these chains in your nose, in your ears because you wanted to be under the radar? Are you kidding me? You do all this so people will look at you. So he's looking at you. So tell it walking, jerks. Now, about that time, I hear on the intercom, uh, code seven on the concourse, code seven on, and Jay comes over and says, dad, they're paging you again. Like, oh, God, here comes security. But look, here's the point. If you make a statement, own it. I don't care if these guys put a chain coming out of their brain. But if you do, own it. Don't have a statement that you make and then criticize people for reacting to your statement. If you go to work and you are authoritarian and you order everybody around and you act like you're King Kong, so everybody treats you like you're a cop or everybody treats you like you're the school principal, then don't get upset because nobody wants to go have lunch with you. Own your statement. And if you don't like your statement, then change your statement.
I ask you to think about not what you do, but who you are and how you got to be there. From the time you were born, people have been writing on the slate of who you are. The way you were treated as you were a child, what your experiences were in school, did you succeed or fail academically, athletically, socially, what role you had in your family, were you the clown, were you the perfect kid, were you the black sheep, I mean, whatever. People have written on the slate of who you are that have determined who you become. I always say to parents, we're not raising children, we're raising adults. And when you were five years old, your parents were raising the adult you have become today. Many people say that personalities are formed by the time you're five, six, seven years old. Other researchers say that continues on into your 30s. But certainly, every day of your life, everywhere along the way, People are writing on the slate of who you are. And so that's who you are sitting in that chair today. You have a personal truth. You have a statement you make. I'm just asking you to evaluate the statement you make. Ask yourself if it's the one you want to make and then own it. Here's a good way to give yourself a test. Ask yourself honestly what you think people say about you when you're not around. Not what they say to your face, but what they say when you're not around. Give yourself enough credit to be big enough to think about what people say when you walk away. Do they say, that's a really nice person, I really like her, I really like him, or they are insufferable? Give yourself enough credit to consider what kind of statement you're making. And remember, a lot of what you communicate is nonverbal. Now, it's been said that 7% of all communication is verbal and the rest is nonverbal. That's true if all you're saying is hello, but then the more you talk, the less is nonverbal and the more is verbal. You have to look at your words. Do you speak aggressively? Are you in people's face? Do you violate their personal space? Ask yourself what statements you make, and then ask yourself whether or not that's what you want to make. But either way, you have to own it. Make no mistake, your kids are paying attention to the statement that you make. We always say, you know, kids don't listen these days. Well, maybe they don't listen, but they're always watching. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
They may roll their eyes. They may look away. But make no mistake, your kids are watching. They're watching what kind of statements you make. And it may not be what you think they're watching. Let me give you an example. The most important role model in any child's life is the same-sex parent. A close second is the other-sex parent. Now, you may think, okay, then if I cuss and yell, holler and fight, then, okay, I'm being a bad role model. No, it's not just that. Take this example. Let's say you go to work every day, and every day you come home, and you're moaning and groaning and saying, oh, my God, I'm so tired. I hate that job. What are you communicating to your kids? You're communicating that what you do in life is you grow up and sell out. You grow up and go do something you do not want to do for someone you do not want to do it for and sell out your life. And weeks turn into months, months turn into years, years turn into a lifetime. And you're teaching them that's what's in their future. And then you're going to expect them to grow up and be unique individuals that fight for what they believe in? I don't think so. Ask yourself if you're doing what you don't want to do and coming home and complaining about it every day is teaching your children to grow up and do what they don't want to do and complain about it every day. So I said last time I was going to talk to you about the core characteristics of a champion. And I'm going to do that, but first, I want you to do something for me. I want you to agree to put yourself and your family on what I call project status. Project status. Now, let me tell you what I mean when I say to put yourself and your family on project status. Let's say you're sitting around watching TV. And you have an awareness that you need to clean out the garage and paint it. Okay, you're not doing anything about it. But you've got an awareness that you need to do it. What do you think the chances are of that garage getting painted? Yeah, not much. But let's say you're listing your house for sale and they are going to come and take pictures Monday morning, and it's Friday at noon. Now what are the chances that garage is going to get cleaned out and those walls are going to get painted? Pretty damn good. You know why? Because it becomes a project with a deadline. It becomes a project with a deadline, and you put it on project status. That means you push everything else out of the way. That moves to the top of the priority list. It's on project status, and things start to happen. Now, I tell you that to tell you this. If you aren't fully satisfied with who you are or where you are, if you aren't fully satisfied with your marriage, your family, your career, the amount of money you're making, the amount of money you're saving, the condition you're in, how much weight you're carrying, what kind of health you have, it's not going to change until you put it on project status. Now, let me explain something that. I think is really important before we get to the core characteristics of a champion. And when we get to the core characteristics of a champion, I'm going to be telling you what I have learned across time. And you're going to be hearing some quotes from some real champions. 
I'm talking Charles Barkley, Emmett Smith, Bill Belichick, Shaquille O'Neal, and not just athletes. You're going to be hearing from like Ron White, one of the most successful comedians in the world, Steve Harvey, one of the most successful television personalities in the world, Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest legacies in the history of football, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, Kobe Bryant, Derek Jeter, Billie Jean King. I'm going to be giving you some insight from some of the biggest champions in the history of our country. But I don't want to tell you that unless you're willing to put yourself on project status. Because if you're not willing to put yourself on project status and all you're going to do is just have an awareness, I'm wasting my breath and your time, and I don't want to do either one of those things. So when I say put yourself on project status, I mean you've got to say, I am going to set some goals, I'm going to put them on a timeline, and I am going to commit to change. Now, there are four stages of readiness that I want you to understand before we go forward. Four stages of readiness. Now, stage one is when you are going to commit to a change because it has been assigned by authority. Now, what am I talking about here? Let's say you get in trouble, so you go to court and they give you court-ordered anger management or court-ordered rehab for drunk driving. What do you think the chances are that somebody's going to really make a change when they go to therapy because the court says they have to and no other reason? How about zero? Whatever money they spend on these court-ordered programs, they might as well put them in a paper shredder, take that money, put it in a paper shredder, bag it up, and sell it for confetti. At least they would get some money out of it because it's absolutely worthless. Those people are going because they are compelled to go, and absolutely no change is going to take place. Stage of readiness number two is when you're making a change because somebody else wants you to. You don't really want to, but your wife or your husband or your parents, your friends, they want you to do it, so you do it just to please them. You do it just to get them off your back. You don't really believe it. You don't really want it, but hey, you know, if it shuts them up, fine. I'll do it. Again, what's the chance of meaningful change? Slightly more than making confetti, but not much. Readiness for change, stage number three, is when you intellectually know that you need to do it. You don't feel it, but at least in your mind, you know, hey, this is not smart. Smoking kills you. I know that. I need to stop. In my mind, I know it. I don't feel it. I want to keep smoking. I want to keep drinking. I want to keep doing whatever I'm doing. But at least in my mind, I know it's not smart. I'm not really emotionally there, but at least I'm smart enough to know that what I'm doing is not right. Now, sometimes intellect will take over and you'll white knuckle and power yourself through. So there's some chance for change. But real change happens in stage number four. Stage number four is when mentally and emotionally you are ready for change. Stage four is when you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I will not take this from myself another minute of another hour of another day. I don't care how scary it is on the other side. 
I will face that fear instead of take this from myself for another second. I am sick to death of this. I'm going to throw up if I do this another day. I'm not taking this from myself. I am going to change. That's when you put yourself on project status. That's when you take what I'm getting ready to tell you. That's when you make the most of it. That's when you make a change. Not before. So you have some work to do if you're going to maximize what I'm getting ready to tell you. I want you to put yourself and or your family, whatever your focus is, on project status. I do not want you sitting on the couch having an awareness that you need to change. I don't want to talk to people that have an awareness that they need to change. I want to talk to people that put themselves or their families on project status. Now, if you want to have a phenomenal family, you've got to create some factors, and I'm going to list those for you on the website. Number one, you've got to have a nurturing and accepting family system. I don't care what kind of legacy you had. I don't care what kind of family you grew up in. You are the adult now. You get to decide what kind of family system you have, and you have to create a family system that nurtures every family member and makes every family member feel accepted. The number one need in all people is acceptance. The number one fear in all people is rejection. And if you don't feel acceptance in your own family, then people are writing on the slate of those family members with a real ugly pen. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. You need a family unit that nurtures everybody in the family, accepts everybody in the family. Everybody wants to have a sense of belonging. Everybody wants to feel like if they don't show up somewhere, there's somebody in this world that will miss them. There's somebody in this world that will care. There's somebody in this world that will be checking to find out why they're not where they're supposed to be. You want a family system that nurtures them makes them feel good about who they are, and accepts them as part of the family. And there's a role for every member of the family. Factor number two is that the family has a rhythm versus chaos. And by rhythm, I mean there's a pattern to the family. It's predictable. That doesn't mean there's an absence of spontaneity, but there's a rhythm to it. They just know that, hey, we go to bed at a certain time, we get up at a certain time, we have meals at a certain time, we react to things. Well, there's just a certain rhythm to the family, and it's a very calming rhythm. We can depend on it. We rely on it. It's very important 
that children grow up in a family where there's a certain rhythm, there's a certain flow. Factor number three, there are active communications. And let me tell you how to do that. If you're a parent, I want you to spend time talking to your children about things that do not matter. I didn't misspeak. I said, I want you to spend time talking to your children about things that do not matter. Why? Because it's great practice for when you need to talk to them about things that do matter. You ever watch these hospital shows on TV? What's the first thing they say when they roll somebody into the ER? Start an IV with Ringer's lactate. Do you ever wonder what that was? It's sugar water. It has absolutely nothing in it. There are no antibiotics. There's no pain medication. There's nothing in it. What are they doing? They're getting an open vein. So when they figure out what they do need, there's an open vein so they can easily flow into it what the patient needs. That's what happens when you open channels of communication by talking to your children about things that don't matter. It's not threatening. It's easy. And then when something comes up that does matter, you've got an open vein. You just flow right into it. It's not the first time you've ever gone out and tried to talk to one of your kids and they're thinking, what the hell is this all about? Talk to your children about things that don't matter so there's an open line of communication when things do matter. Number four, you need to create rituals and traditions. And these are things that have to do with birthdays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, bedtime, bedtime rituals, things that your children will remember 30 and 40 years from now. Did you always open your presents on Christmas Eve? Did you go to Mass on Christmas Eve? Did you have birthday parties where there was always a candle and it was just the family? Did you have certain things you did at bedtime? Did you turn the TV off and start calming down before it was bedtime? I always told my boys a story right before they went to bed. And it was always a story about them. I told them a story, and they were in the story. And they always used to listen to figure out, how am I going to be in this story? Because I'd be telling them a story, and then all of a sudden, Jay or Jordan was in the story, and they were doing something, and they always listened for that. And both of those boys grew up from the time they were two, three, four, five years old, getting told a story that they starred in every night before they went to bed. It wasn't a big deal, but it was just a tradition. It was a ritual that they grew up with. And they will tell you to this day that they heard these stories. Sometimes they were funny. Sometimes they were serious. Sometimes they were just matter of fact, but they were always in the story. Create little rituals and traditions for your family. And the fifth thing is you've got to have crisis management. Every member of your family knows that when a crisis arises, there's no judgment, there's no punishment, there's no problem. The crisis gets managed. 
that every family member becomes a resource. They know when problems arise, their primary unit is their family. And they need to know that and learn that, and you need to make that the case no matter what. If your daughter all of a sudden is pregnant at 14, she needs to know my family will rally around me. We'll deal with it later, but right now, I know I have a place to go. If your child is getting bullied at school, they need to know I have a place to go. I'm not going to be left twisting in the wind to deal with this on my own. I have resources in my family. I'm nurtured and I'm accepted. We have active communication and my family is a resource for me. Now, I'm going to have all of those things on the website because if you're going to change your family, it has to be on project status. And if you'll do that, you have a place to start. You have a formula to pursue. That's what you need if you're going to put it on project status. You can't just make it up as you go along. Now, let's talk about you. I said we were going to talk about a lot of people that had put themselves on project status, and I said I was going to give you what I call the core characteristics of a champion. Here's the exciting part about this. I've studied winning. I've studied motivation. I've studied championships all my life. I've studied champions all my life. I told you last time I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. I focused on why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. And here's some really good news. Across time, I have studied dozens and dozens and dozens of case studies of success. And here's what I found out. There are certain factors, certain characteristics of every champion I've ever studied. They're there every time. They're not there some of the time. They're there every single time. I started out with a big list, but I only kept the factors that were there every single time. If it was there half the time and not half the time, I threw it out. I just kept the factors on the list that were there every single time. And I worked it down to a list of seven, the seven core characteristics of a champion. And the good news is, not only are those things identifiable, but those seven things are doable by regular people, people like you and me. We don't have to be world champion skiers or world champion scientists or researchers. These are things that are doable by regular people like you and me. And I'm going to give you some illustrations. Now, I'm kind of heavy on athletes here because I grew up in an athletic world, and so I paid particular attention to those. But I want to play you some quotes from some people and tell you why they mean something to me. I was talking to Charles Barkley not long ago. Listen to this quote that he had to say when I asked what motivated him to be one of the top five rebounders in the history of the NBA. I was actually gigging him a little bit because I said, hey, you're not the greatest specimen, but yet you're one of the greatest rebounders. How did you make that happen? Here's what he said. Well, because I had success as a freshman. 
because I led the SEC in rebounding for three years. And one of my coaches said, you know, if you get 10 rebounds a night, if you look at the NBA right now, I think there's probably only seven or eight guys averaging 10 rebounds a game. Right. He says, if you get 10 rebounds a night, son, you're going to be in the NBA. And I'm like, that's going to be my specialty. I'm going to get me at least 10 rebounds a night. Think about what he just said. Somebody told him a formula for success. They said, you get 10 rebounds a night, you're going to be in the NBA. They said, here is a definition of success. You do this, you get that. And he nailed that down. He said, that is my ticket right there. I can do that. I've got something specific I can do. He had a clear definition of success. In another podcast, I was talking to Emmett Smith, the number one rushing champion in the history of the NFL. Listen to what he said. The foundation of, of sports is the one thing that I lean on the most. I think it's the thing that has helped shape and guide me and, and give me the discipline and the focus uh, that I need uh, and that I needed to become who I am. It was my way out of the neighborhood. What you just heard Emmett say was what motivated him and that he had a strategy to change his station in life. He put his station in life on project status. He had himself a strategy for getting out. He knew, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in the projects. I want out. So he had a strategy, and he knew what it was. Here's another quote from Emmett. I do believe to whom much is given, much is required right now. They're coming to watch somebody perform, and somebody perform well. And so to me, I, t- I started taking, the, uh, taking on this, this, this mantra, like the larger the crowd, the more I wanted to perform. I wanted to give them what they came to see. And so... I wanted my talent to stand out on that football field like no other. I wanted people to walk away and say, man, I think I just saw something very, very special. And and that was important uh, because the more I looked at it this way, the more I performed at my best, the more everyone else would probably perform at their best and the more chance, more opportunities we would have to not only win games, but um, perhaps even win championships too. Wow. You just had a glimpse into the heart of a champion. And what did you hear? You heard passion. You heard that he takes action towards a known outcome. You heard what he's saying to himself in his mind when he's pursuing something. What do you say to yourself? He was taking action towards a known outcome, and he was very passionate about it. Then. As though that wasn't enough, he said the following. I tried to visualize the entire game before the game even was played. I tried to visualize the play calls, when I got the ball, what was going on on the defensive side of the ball, where the guys was coming from. I tried to create this picture, this movie in my mind in terms of what I was going to do and what I was going to see and how I was going to respond. Now, I've talked about the importance of knowing what success was, but good grief, talk about being specific 
He's playing a movie in his mind of what success is going to look like, feel like, so visionary. And that's present in every champion I've ever studied. Never, ever did he shy from the challenge. Listen to this. And so, but having the experience of being in games that are very, very meaningful to you as an individual player and to you as a team is absolutely paramount to your life experiences. I think it all pays, it pays itself forward and backwards. It gives you the opportunity to appreciate certain things. You've heard the old saying, pressure is privilege. He's telling you it matters that you are in situations that are meaningful that have a consequence. He didn't want to be in a comfort zone. He wanted the ball. He wanted to take risks. Champions take risks. Champions get in the game of life. They get in the game of football. And when they do, they want to be in the pressure positions. They don't shy from center stage. They say, put me in, coach. Give me the ball. Listen to what Shaquille O'Neal had to say. I was raised by a disciplinarian father. Philip Harrison was a drill sergeant in the Army. So when he met my mother and I at two, started early. Give me the bottle. Learn how to tie your own shoe. I thank him. I thank him all the time. Like, he was very hard on me, but it's not something that I dwell on now and say, he was too hard on me. I'm glad he did it. Because I look at a lot of guys in my position. They have no discipline. They have no drive. They have no values. So he... He put that into me right away. As I was saying at at three years old, give me the bottle. You hear what he's saying? This isn't about being lazy. This is about requiring the most out of yourself. This isn't about a comfort zone. This is saying, I didn't want the easy road. I wanted the demanding road. I wanted to require a lot out of myself. I put myself on project status. My father put me on project status, and I didn't buck it. I embraced it. And now... When I got into the league, I realized I had an edge on everybody else. You know, I talked to you at the beginning of part one and said, I wanted you to be someone that got it. What did I want you to get? I wanted you to have an edge on the rest of the world. This was Shaq's edge. He was disciplined from a very early age. He required a lot of himself. Champions do that. They don't look for the cushy road. They don't look for the easy way out. And what motivated him? Listen to what he says about motivation. Because that number was a factor. I grew up with nothing. And being the oldest boy and the toughest-minded boy, there's a lot of times I didn't get anything. But, you know, you always got to take care of the younger sisters. You always got to take care of So when I'm like five million a year, I can get them a house. I can get, like, I was just, that's a factor for me. I don't, I'm I'm not an engineer. I can't be like, oh, I can if I write this essay, I can get an engineer. That That's not a factor for me. So when I see the five million that could change everybody's lives, yeah. that's a motivating factor for me. So I had to jump on that chance. Did you hear that? Jump on that chance. The universe rewards action. He saw something he wanted. He saw a guy make $5 million and he said, I can do that. I'm going to seize the moment. If that guy's getting $5 million for what he's doing, I can get $5 million for what I'm doing. I'm going to get out there and get mine. I'm going to take action. I'm not going to sit in a comfort zone. I'm not going to have a damaged personal truth and say that's for him, not for me. 
I'm claiming it. You generate the results in life you believe you deserve. He believed he deserved that $5 million. That wasn't for somebody else. That was for him. Like, he always used to, like, do, like, little weird stuff like that just to keep me pumped up. Yeah, so you play that game in your mind. Yes. You, you have these internal motivations. Yes, you're not, you're not taking my mother's house, ever. Everybody's driven by something. And as you watch Shaq play basketball all these years, did you have any idea that when he's ripping the rim off the backboard, when he's pushing people out of the way, going down the line, that what was in his mind and heart is, I'm going to get that ball, I'm going to put it in the hoop because I'm going to keep my job because if I lose my job, you're going to take my mama's house away and you're not taking my mama's house away. That's what motivated him. How about you? What motivates you? And then he told me something beyond profound. I'm like, damn, Jerry West, I'm that great. I can have my name on. I know I was good, but shit, we still had Mike. Yeah. Barkley. <laughs> yeah. Ewan, right? We still had guys that were, I'll never be that good. But, you know, when, when you get somebody like that to believe in you, it turns up another notch. You remember me talking about personal truth and internal dialogue? He began to put a nucleus of people around him that believed in him. And that meant something to him. Even Shaquille O'Neal. We look at Shaquille O'Neal and say he is basketball. He's like a house with a ball in his hand. But he says, no, no, it meant the world to me that someone like Jerry West believed that I was special. Let's get away from sports for a minute. Ron White's one of my best friends. A lot of people have said, what? How could Ron White be one of your best friends? He's a dope-smoking, cigar-smoking, scotch-drinking rounder, and you haven't had a drink in 50 years. Well, you don't have to love everything somebody does to love them, and I love Ron White. He is a good man. He's a good father with a good heart. Do I like that he smokes dope and gets drunk too often? No, and I tell him every chance I get. But he doesn't listen. I still love him. He's one of the hardest working people I have ever met. This guy makes millions of dollars filling up arenas, and he does 200 nights a year. What I would do, and this is brilliant, and I know you'll agree, is I would invent stage time. So I would go to a restaurant and say, you guys should have a comedy competition here, and first prize is dinner for two. Then I would only tell comics that I knew I was funnier than because I needed that dinner for two. Yeah. So I, I wanted to win, so I wouldn't invite anybody that was any good. It would all be really crummy comics and me, who was a little less crummier than those guys are, just to get a, just to get a meal. Now, he puts a joke into everything, but listen to the initiative he's talking about. This wasn't a comedy club. He would go into a restaurant and say, you need a comedy act here. He had the initiative, the motivation, the passion to create a place to be. I asked him about that, and he said this. My only goal is to make you laugh as hard as you can physically laugh for as long as I'm on stage. That's my goal. Yeah. Uh, it's not that you walk away smarter, because you certainly won't. Uh <laughs> Obviously, what I want you to do is walk away with your face hurting. 
that's a definition of success. He knows what his lane is. He knows what he's good at, and he passionately pursues it. He's defined success very specifically, and he's taking action in that area. He's not trying to be all things to all people. He has decided, this is who I am. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm pursuing, and I'm going to be the best there is at what I do. What is that for you? What is your special skill? What is it that you do better than anybody else? What is it that is uniquely you that you can put on project status to improve in the next 12 months and make a quantum leap forward? And are you willing to do what you need to do to do it? You don't leap tall buildings in a single bound. You do it a step at a time. I'll do three sets a night. When I'm in town, I'll do the the improv Laugh Factory comedy store, and sometimes I'll do three sets at the comedy store. So sometimes it's five sets a night. He's talking about when he's not doing a city. He's talking about when he has time off. He'll be home and go to a comedy club down the street for no money and do three, four, five sets a night just to hone his skill. So if I want to stay really, really sharp, on stage, uh, you know, I do a lot of sets. You know, I still do 110 cities a year uh, in big venues and then another, you know, 10 or 12 sets a week. Steve Harvey is another amazingly talented comedian, actor, talk show host, MC, producer. He said something that was really interesting and showed so much the heart of a champion. You know what, man? Because I think we, we cut from the same type of cloth. You said something to me a long time ago. You said, you blowing out my candle ain't going to make yours brighter. And I've used that so many times. And I've always given you credit for sharing that with me. And that's what a lot of people think, man. A lot of people think that if you, that if you blow somebody else up, that makes you less. Or if you lessen somebody, that blows you up. No, nah, man. Your candle flicker is your candle flicker. What he's talking about there is you don't get ahead by putting other people down. You get ahead by being the best you can. This is a guy that hoed rows of corn in a field when he was 11 years old. And you know, these champions didn't start at the top. They started where they started. They started scratching out a living. Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, that's easy to be quoting these champions, these multi-millionaire world champions. It's great for them. But I'm sitting here living in a rented apartment in a neighborhood, barely making my car payment or rent. Let me tell you, these guys didn't start out making millions of dollars. Listen to what Steve Harvey said. His philosophy was, you do what you can do when you can do it. Don't turn down no gigs. Take them wherever. He said, look, man, this business right here, what good is it you to sit at home? Because there's no school for comedy. There's nothing you can go do to become a comedian. You have to be born this way. So the only school for comedy is the stage. You have to go there as many times as you can. He says, so if somebody offer you 125 for the week and you've been getting 250, you're not going to go get the 125? So you're going to sit at the house and get zero? 
or you going to go to school and get 125. He said, man, they paying you to learn the craft. Never forget that. And that was it. I took every gig. I didn't care what it paid. If I was off, I took the gig. That was the greatest advice he told me. That hustle has remained in me since then. Now, he's talking about what Sinbad, another great comedian, told him. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Don't pass up any gig. Take action towards a known outcome. And it's not going to be a success-only journey. You know, I read one time where Michael Jordan said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. This is not a success-only journey. This is something where you've got to fight your way every step of the way. Billie Jean King, greatest woman's tennis player of her era, maybe of all time, said a champion is afraid of losing. Everyone else is afraid of winning. Now, what do you think she means by that? She means people live in a comfort zone, and it takes guts to win. Because why? People have a damaged personal truth, and they think, I don't deserve to win, and when it gets down to it, they'll find a way to lose. They'll choke. They'll find a reason. Do you do that? Do you come in second? Do you fall short? Because in your heart of hearts, you don't really believe you're a winner. You don't really believe you're a champion. A wise man once said the difference between winners and losers is that winners do things losers do not want to do. Well, maybe it wasn't a wise man. Maybe that was me. But that's really a good thought when you think about it. Winners do things losers don't want to do. So how about you? You willing to do what losers don't want to do? Well, let's find out. Because I'm going to tell you the seven core characteristics of a champion right now. I'm going to tell you what I have learned. I've studied it. I've read about it. I've experienced it. And you're going to find, I'm going to be summarizing for you, what I just gave you examples of from all of these amazing champions, Barkley, Emmett, Belichick, Shaq, Ron White, Steve Harvey, all of these different people, and here they are. The number one thing I found among people that were winners, people that were champions, is they understood you have to name it to claim it. They were very clear about what it is they wanted. They were very clear about their definition of success. These people that were winners, if you ask them, tell me about success in your life. Tell me about what you're after. Oh, man, would they tell you. You know, a lot of people would say, oh, I don't want to talk about it. I'll jinx myself. Not these people. 
they would say, oh, let me tell you. I can tell you how it's going to look. I can tell you how it's going to feel. I can tell you how it's going to smell. I can tell you who's going to be there when it happens. I can tell you everything about it. They would give you rich detail. They could see it. I mean, it was just palpable to them. It was so real. They were not an unguided missile. They were like a laser bomb. They had a target, and they knew exactly what it was. Number two, these people had a strategy. They had a strategy from getting from where they were to what they wanted. They weren't just out there working hard saying, well, hopefully someday it's just going to pay off. No, no, no. They had a strategy. They had a plan. They recognized the difference between goals and dreams was a timeline and a calendar. They knew they had to have a timeline. They recognized that someday is not a day of the week. They recognized that if I want what I want, I've got to set a goal, I've got to identify the steps necessary to achieve the goal, and I've got to put that against a timeline, and I've got to hold myself accountable. They had a clear goal in mind and a strategy to get there, and that kept them focused on what they did want instead of working for what they didn't want. You don't want to work all your life for what you don't want and then get it and go, wow, I got what I didn't want. If you're going to spend all your life working, at least work for what you do want, not what you don't want. To do that, you have to define success, and then you have to have a strategy to get there. And that means you've got to break your goals down into measurable terms. Third, these people recognize that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But the universe rewards actions. These weren't people that sat around with good intentions. These were people that put verbs in their sentences. They powered up towards a known outcome. They behaved their way to success. They did it until. They didn't work on it for a day or a week or a month or a year. They did it until. There was no quit in these people. They never stopped. They were relentless. They did not stop until they got what they want. The universe rewards action, not intention. They took power from action. They moved towards their goal. The difference between winners and losers is winners do things losers don't want to do, and that means taking action and never quitting until you get what you want. Fourth, these people did not live in a comfort zone. They did not live in a comfort zone. They were willing to take risks. They were not the kind of person that would keep one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat and do the splits because they were afraid to leave land. They were willing to take the risk to go out to sea. They weren't reckless, but they didn't live in a comfort zone. And you know what the number one risk is that people take? You know what scares people the most? It's that if they succeed, then people are going to expect them to maintain it. Think about it. Let's say you're working in a job and you're making $75,000 a year and it's sales and all of a sudden you jump up and you make $100,000. Well, isn't everyone going to expect you to do that again or better the next year? You damn right they are. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to adjust your lifestyle. You're going to start living at $100,000 a year level. You're going to get a $100,000 a year house, $100,000 a year car. You're going to get $100,000 a year friends. 
And there's going to be lots of pressure to maintain that. That worries people. It's much easier to just stay where you are, stay where it's comfortable. Not these people, not the people I've studied that were champions. The people I studied that were champions were willing to take the risk. They were willing to get out of the comfort zone. They were willing to risk what they had to get what they wanted. Number five, there was an interesting quality about these people. They dealt with reality. These were not people that would kid themselves. These were people that dealt with reality. These are people that if they were in a bad relationship, they admitted it. They were in a bad marriage, they said so. And interestingly enough, they did not have an uncommonly high divorce rate. Why? Because if they had a problem, they acknowledged it and they worked the problem. But they dealt with reality. They weren't in denial. If they were pursuing something and it was flawed, they acknowledged the flaws, they fixed them, or they made a course correction. They dealt with reality. They did not lie to themselves. They did not kid themselves. They did not go down some fantasy trail, some get-rich-quick scheme. They were honest with themselves and everyone around them. And the last two I'm going to talk about together because they go together. Number six is nucleus. Not one single success story that I studied was a Lone Ranger. Every single one of them surrounded themselves with people that wanted them to succeed. They surrounded themselves with people that were like-minded, that shared their passion, and wanted them to do well. They wanted them to get what they were after. They wanted them to succeed, and they went along for the ride because they were part of the journey. They were part of the success they got to reap the benefits as well. How about you? Do you have toxic people in your life? Do you have people in your circle that do not want you to do well? Do you have toxic people in your life that are depressed, anxious, on drugs, messed up? They're not pulling all in the same direction as you, but you let them hang around and contaminate your environment your mind, your efforts, your world, if you are, get rid of them. The only thing worse than being in a bad relationship for a year is being in a bad relationship for a year and one day. If you've got bad people in your life, hit the eject button and put them in your rearview mirror. Do not burn daylight. Get them out of your life. And the last characteristic that goes along with nucleus, because it is what bonds people together, is passion passion, excitement. You have to have passion in your life, and if you don't, you need to find something that you are passionate about. You know, it was interesting. My son Jay wrote a book called Life Strategies for Teens, and in preparation for that book, he talked to groups of teens. He talked to some groups that were on drugs, and he talked to some groups that were not on drugs. And there was one primary characteristic that differentiated the two groups. I was very surprised, as was he, at what that differentiating characteristic was. It was not moral compass or disciplinary parents. You know what it was? The kids that were on drugs, they were asked, why are you on drugs? Their most common answer was, I have no reason not to be. I have no reason not to be, and I want to be accepted. And the entry 
requirements for the drug culture is simply that I do drugs. I don't have to be clean. I don't have to be smart. Don't have to be short, tall, fat, skinny. Doesn't matter. All I got to do is do drugs. There are no entry requirements whatsoever. And I have no reason not to do drugs. I got nothing else going on. And when he asked the kids who were not on drugs why they weren't on drugs, he thought he would get an answer of some moral compass that steered them away from it. That was not the answer. The answer was greed. The answer was greed. They said, I'm not on drugs because it does not fit my plan. I have something I want, and this does not get me closer to that goal. Whether it was they wanted a car, or they wanted to be on the football team, or the debate team, or go to college, or whatever, and they just said, drugs does not get me what I want. I passionately want to be on the football team. I passionately want to go to college. I passionately want to have a car. I passionately need this job. And drugs simply don't get me what I want, so it's my greed that keeps me moving forward. And drugs don't help, so they don't fit my plan. What does that tell you, Mom and Dad? If you have a kid that's not passionate about something in life, you need to stop listening to me right now and go find something for them to be passionate about. Because if they're passionate about something in their life where they don't have time for drugs, they're much less likely to go down that road. But how about you? Are you going through the motions? Are you waking up every day and just putting one foot in front of the other and going through the motions? Are you doing what you're doing today primarily because it's what you were doing yesterday? Not because it's what you want to do, but because it's what you're already doing. Are you doing what you're doing today because it's what's expected by your family, your friends, your church, whoever? Are you living an assigned life instead of an authentic life? If you aren't passionate about what you're doing, you need to really step back and ask yourself what it is you would be passionate about. Because you need to be passionate about something. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you're blessed enough that your hobby and your job are the same thing, where your avocation and your vocation are one in the same. If that's true, you are truly blessed. But you need something that you are so excited about, so passionate about, that you just want to sleep fast. It's just like you just want to go to bed and go, zzz, get me back up. I want to get back in the game. I don't want to waste time sleeping. I want in the game. I want to be in life. I want to get moving. And if that's not the case, you need to change the case. These seven factors were present in every success case that I have studied over the last 45 years. And as I said, every one of them are doable by you. They're doable by me. Put yourself on project status. Put your life on project status. Maybe you're not going to be the number one rusher in the NFL. Maybe you're not going to be in the top five rebounders in the NBA. Maybe you're not going to be one of the top grossing comedians or entertainers in the world. But you can be the best at what you do. You can be the best in your life. And you can be excited about who you are and where you are 
every day for the rest of your life. You remember I asked the senator, what's the most exciting thing to ever happen in your life? And he said, well, Sonny, I hope it hasn't happened yet. And I certainly hope it hasn't happened yet in your life. And I certainly hope it hasn't happened yet in mine. I'll talk to you next week. When I put on that 51 jersey, my dad's number at Long Island City High School, he wore number 51. And um, I wore number 51 with the New York Knicks for my dad. And that was probably the highlight of my career. To me, acting is listening and responding. And it goes back to an old Stanislavski quote, which is the secret to an actor's creativity is the object of his concentration. I like to come back here and work on cars. You know, there's that old saying, the heart is happiest when the head and the hands work together. Mm -hmm. And when you write jokes all day, you're just thinking with your head. And then you come and you work with your hands and it's just relaxing yeah. and you're accomplishing something. You feel like you, you, you've done something. I like having a front row seat to whatever happens in the world.